Welcome to the Vell Institute podcast. I'm your humble servant and host, Terry Weaver. Our mission for this podcast is to bring you stories about veterans, entrepreneurs, and leaders who are doing fascinating things with their lives. Our hope is to inspire you because we believe that inspired individuals will change lives, both theirs and others for the good. Bell Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're asking for your support. There are two ways to do that. One, by getting involved with our mission, and two, by contributing financially. Please visit vellinstitute.org. That's V-E-L institute.org to help us make an impact. Our podcast guest today is Dr. Todd DeWitt. Todd is one of the world's most popular leadership personalities, authenticity experts, and he is one of the most engaging public speakers I've ever heard. Todd is a superstar in online education with over 10 million happy users of his LinkedIn learning courses. Todd holds an earned PhD from Texas A&M University. He's a best-selling author, a TEDx speaker, and an Inc. Magazine Top 100 Leadership Speaker. All his info can be found at drdewitt.com. That's drdewitt, D-E-W-E-T-T dot com. I hope you enjoy this wild ride of a conversation with my friend and the ever-impressive Dr. Todd DeWitt. So, first of all, thank you for agreeing to come and do this podcast. Um, a couple years ago, I reached out to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ask if you would come up and speak for Vell Institute. And that's right when we were getting things off. You the got line. it. And uh, I said, I asked you, well, what, what would it take to get you up here? And, and I asked you, you know, what kind of charges are we looking at and stuff like that? And you told me, <laughs> you told me that you told me you're very handsome, respectable rate. And I just about cried in my car driving <laughs> down the freeway. And then, you know, after a minute, I think you could tell that there was no way we could, you know, take care of that and you said you know what let me just come up there sure and help you guys out so I appreciate that um, you said things in that first talk that have stuck with me and so that's why I want to keep coming back and, and learning from you and helping other people learn from you that's so very kind you. man I appreciate that yeah um, you inspire a lot of people and, and use your talent and gifts to give back and um, I wanted to ask you why well I think it's the uh the responsibility of anyone who's found, let's call it a little bit of success above average. Uh, the truth is, and I don't want this to hit anyone's ears wrong, but a lot of people want to talk about, hey, the success in life is really about hard work, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, et cetera, et cetera. I believe in all of that, and I think that that is incomplete. Because aside from all those types of things you hear, uh, there is a luck factor. Uh, there's just no doubt about it. There's certain things I was lucky to have happen and lucky enough to take advantage of that helped put me where I am. I was born with, uh, a long story short, decent parents, decent neighborhood, zip codes matter a great deal in predicting almost anything in life. Uh, that's been well studied. And I was born speaking. I didn't used to sound horrible and then, then train myself in a decade to, to sound like this. I was given that for free, didn't earn it. That's just the genetic lottery when you're born. I was born tall you know, and confident. You know what kind of advantage that is in life? <laughs> so there's a million things like that that I didn't earn. I just got through being born. And then there's people along the way who take chances on you and help you think a little deeper and more productively. And because of all those things, I know that I'm where I am because I earned it and because people helped. And so I'm in a good place. 
And why wouldn't you then go help others the way you are helped? It's that simple. The case for service for anyone who's successful, I think, is powerful because we all were the beneficiaries of helping hands. So go be one for someone else. That's good. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I agree with you. Some people think leaders are born. I know. I know. T tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, there's pretty good research there. You know, I haven't been a professor for years, but I do remember my training quite well. And uh, the truth is there are advantages one might be born with. For example, we know that people who tend to be extroverts have a communication advantage on average at work. Now, I'm not saying that's fair. I'm saying it tends to be true. So if you're born that way without thinking deeply, you kind of have a nice leg up. Uh, so that's true. You can be born with, with a leg up. It does not define you, and the reason that you, it's better for me to say that leaders are made, not born, is because aside from that foundation, leadership is very uh, genuinely viewed as a set of skills. Skills are things anyone with the right approach, temperament, patience can learn. So yes, you're born with some. What you do with it in terms of skill building over a lifetime is completely up to you. Okay. You talked a little bit about being born with the right foundation and, and deciding what to do with that foundation, so making a conscious effort, was there any defining moment in your life that you can remember happening and then you say, okay, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something impactful, I'm going to decide to do this with my life? Was there a defining moment that you can speak to? I wouldn't say one. Um, I'm, again, very, very lucky. I think I was born naturally talking and coaching. Uh, I know I was. I look back to elementary, late elementary, middle school. You know, who, who did you go to for advice? Well, my friends came to me. I'm not sure I understood why, uh, but they did. And then in high school, I didn't discover I was smart until late in high school, so uh, grades did not put me on the top of the list of, of students our senior year. Um, I was actually, I don't know, 60th or 70th out of nearly 400 kids, and yet I was still asked to speak at graduation because people wanted to hear me say something, which is strange and beautiful. And that stuck with me through college. And during college, I was standing up and making presentations normal students make. And I could tell I was always comfortable and successful and the professors were kind. And it just became obvious that finding some sort of educational role where I could share the things that I learned and began consuming made absolute sense. It wasn't just one moment. I just saw a pattern of speaking being a part uh, of my life I needed to amplify. So you must have been popular in high school, because I don't think kids give a crap much about being super smart. <laughs> no, in they don't. School, How sad is that, yeah, man? In high school, <laughs> they care about popularity. How did you, why were you popular? Well, I was popular. I was not the most popular. I think I, I, I did well in terms of popularity. I certainly wasn't the most popular. I was very big and tall and known to be a decent guy, smart, uh, athlete, varsity athlete, basketball. Uh, and those things are kind of uh, an immediate, especially varsity sports, is a little pass. You're all of a sudden just accepted as kind of acceptable. So I think I, by default, through sports, got some notoriety that otherwise I would have had to have earned harder. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. You write and, and speak about authenticity. I want to mm. ask you why you do that first. What began this journey for me, uh, Terry, years ago... Uh, while I was working for Anderson and Ernst & Young, where I only spent a few years before I learned what I needed and then moved to the next chapter, and what I learned, among other things, was that people uh, aren't comfortable every day. They repress themselves every day. They fail to say things they wish to say 
every day. They feel like they're not doing what they ideally would be doing every day if they had their choice. I just noticed that person by person as a very young professional. And I thought to myself, you know what, I think that's me too. I don't think I quite fit in here. What do I do? Do I want to be trapped in this odd feeling of not being in the right place for a lifetime? Or do I want to do something about it? And I started getting interested as a result in studying people, motivation, communication, all these things that make us as people function poorly or great at work. And I realized I could escape the Cubeland trap uh, and go get a PhD and indulge my love of business and people from the outside as a professor or a consultant uh, who doesn't work inside a traditional hierarchy. You speak at big companies, GE, Boeing, ExxonMobil, just to name a couple. When you talk about authenticity, what's the biggest objection from the people uh, from those companies that say, I can't be my authentic, authentic self because of? Sure. Uh, well, I was in Redmond near Seattle uh, speaking to Microsoft uh, a few weeks ago, and that came up. It comes up every other talk since I adopted the authenticity kind of mantle a few years ago. Um, hey, I hear you. Hey, that makes sense. Not sure I can act on that. Aren't there risks involved in being authentic? Well, sure there are. And the, the rule is what I preach, and on average it does tend to work, but every rule has exceptions. And do you want someone who's unpleasant in some knowable way to be truly authentic every day? <laughs> Probably not, because we like them to contain whatever jerk-like behaviors they might have instead of showing them at work. Uh, people don't feel that they, uh, their boss is open to anything that resembles a personal rapport as opposed to just a professional rapport. So there are real challenges. Great. I'd be happy to talk to people about them. I've written about them. Having said that, the the the... Uh, typical answer on average that does work is to realize that we're actually just offering a very limited, uninteresting, truncated version of ourselves to others every day because of many somewhat irrational fears about what it means to be a professional. And that when you let down those walls just a little bit and more authenticity, more real you tends to creep into conversations. We know, again, on average, that makes relationships stronger. That builds a rapport and a trust, which is the foundation of next level conversations that eventually lead to change and innovation in teams. Hmm. Speaking of fear, there's, mm. a, there's a really cool quote, one of my favorites. It says, uh, life expands and contracts in, the, in proportion to one's fear by Mies Nen. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good stuff. The real question is how much of those fears are founded. Um, I'm into quotes, as you know, and I'm actually going to start selling these. I have a bunch of quotes over the years, and I have a graphic designer friend who's put together these neat look, neat visuals uh, with these quotes, and I'm going to sign them and sell them because a client asked for one, so that's how that started. And one of my favorites, which I hope doesn't offend anyone, uh, goes like this. Sacred cows make great barbecue, which I think jives with what you shared very, very well, uh, even if it does sound crude to some ears. It, it, the point stands, and it's similar to uh, how life changes depending on your view of risk. We know that progress is not risk-free. We know that the people we remember and revere took risks that could have gone either way, uh, but they persevered and tried and tried again. In fact, we know most people we care about who got somewhere by taking principled risks failed a bunch first before they did something amazing. I'm certainly in that group. Uh, 10,000 plus people watch my videos every single day. Now, long before I was that guy, I was the guy that launched a business on my own for this, this growing little uh, video education market, and I put 100K of my own money in that, and it failed miserably because I didn't know what I was doing. I now know with painful clarity that I'm not a marketer. 
<laughs> but because of what I learned and the expertise and comfort in front of a camera that I gained in that project, I later was an ideal person to be discovered uh, by lynda.com, which became LinkedIn, which is now owned by Microsoft. So every one of us of any stripe, for so many people more successful than me, any of them, uh, all went through fascinating things that, that look a whole lot like failure multiple times before they got there. Bill Gates, Bill Gates' first company with uh, with Allen, who just passed recently, I believe, a Balmer, Balmer, who passed recently, in his hotel room. Uh, if I remember, it was called Trafo Data. They wanted to put down the little things that record cars bumping over them on the road to sell data to, to the municipalities. And it failed miserably. And no one talks about that. Well, that's exactly what we should be talking about. What he did, who he did it with, and what he learned, and why he chose, when he thought about that, to try another crazy thing, which he did, thankfully. And it became a fascinating firm called Microsoft. Oprah Winfrey was told she's not right for TV more than once before she became the Oprah that we know. Failure is fascinating because we, sh we, as a society, at least in North America, we shun it and we stigmatize it so bad when it is the bedrock of learning and growth. Okay. I'm going to hit you with a, a uh, curveball. Mm. What's your, you're all tatted up. Yes. Yeah. What's your favorite tattoo and why? Ah, <laughs> not curveball. I get that a lot. Um, favorite one and why? I think the most honest answer to that would be my first one because it represents the moment that you decided to do something unchangeable to yourself. And it's also the best answer. I don't want to take my shirt off. There's a tribal piece. You've heard of tribal tattoos. Very simple tribal piece when I was 19 that went right here. And it was the first time I felt the uh, cojones, the courage, the desire to do something that at the time was still more heavily stigmatized. Tattoos are still stigmatized, but small today compared to large 20 plus years ago. Uh, and it's also an interesting answer to your question because it's about honesty in, in authenticity because you know what that means? All these tats mean something, or at least most of them. That one meant nothing. It meant I'm 19. Look at me, right? It's just I'm alive. Look what I did. And that's as deep as it was. I'm not proud of that, uh, but that is the evolution of a person. We mature, don't we? Hmm. So there you go. I like it. Let's talk stereotypes and, and role play a little bit. Mm. Now, I'm familiar with some of your, your writing, and, and uh, you're tatted up and you're clean shaven. Where did you serve? I didn't. I get that a lot. Uh, so people, oh, I stereotypes, fascinating topic uh, from the world of organizational behavior where I sat in the ivory tower for a while. Stereotypes, fascinating. I have uh, sat next to people on planes who have said, where did you serve? Um, I've been in bars and assumed that I am a skinhead. People have said, hey, you said you're waiting on your friends. I think they're here. I look over in the corner. This happened in Atlanta, Georgia, and there's a group of skinheads sitting down for a beer in a bar. And I politely said to the bartender, not with them. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, back in the day before men wore earrings all the time, that meant someone would think I'm homosexual. So I've had hilarious moments where people assume something interestingly not defining about about me, and then I have to deal with it and explain away things. But the, the fun part about getting older, you stop explaining. You don't need to. I am what I am. People react. That's just fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? I hear you. But you, you talk about why stereotypes are formed, mm. and you talk about what, you know, they can be useful. They are, I wouldn't say useful. I would say that stereotypes are uh, very efficient. They are a cognitive mechanism humans usually unconsciously use to take data, something they see, that they don't fully understand, and make a summary quick 
thus actionable, judgment about it. Hey, I see a young person. They must like rap. That's a stereotype. May or may not be true. It is efficient. Boom, it's done. No deep thought necessary. The question is whether or not it's effective. And we know from common sense and research, more often than not, it's not effective. Okay, good to know. Yep. It helps us keep an open mind. And, and It should. Yeah, it should. We don't always see what we think we're seeing. That is a truth. You, uh, you said you're a recovering college professor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me about that? Well, that was one of my favorite rackets so far. <laughs> uh, I spent 15 years in that business uh, for getting a Ph.D. at Texas A&M in the uh, business school in management. Ooh. Yeah, and loved that place. Had a great time there and was, more importantly, trained very well by some amazing faculty. Had a blast there. Learned how to fall in love with teaching there as well as a doctoral student. I did a fifth year as a after I graduated as a postdoc uh, research fellow, and then I did ten years in the classroom at a school in Ohio called Wright State University that I just love and had a blast there. Amazing career. You get to teach people, which I love doing, sitting there with motivated adults trying to better their lives, better their careers, and maybe you can help them do that a little. And then on the scholarly side, I can scratch that intellectual itch by, by writing dorky scientific papers for a small community of scholars who may or may not ever read what you publish. I loved both those, and I couldn't believe they paid me to do it. And I had tenure. I had a job for life. Um, and then, as you know, life throws you curveballs. You make your plan, and then well, life just evolves in ways you can't predict. And writing of a different nature and speaking for a living became uh, clear as an option over several years. And I didn't even, I mean, when I started that game, I thought, this is awesome, I'll do this till I retire, and I'm lucky and grateful. And then five years in, I'm thinking about leaving already because speaking took over. So life is very unexpected. So what, what happened? Were people calling on you to come speak for them once they found out kind of you were, that was your, one of your strengths? Sure. So it started with students. I, had, I taught MBA students for 10 years, and they're all 25 to 50, airing in the late 20s, early 30s. And they would go out, and they have to plan a meeting, and they'd call me, and, hey, I had a meeting last year. The guy who spoke was just really kind and boring. I remember you're loud and funny. Would you come out and tell some of your stories? And I said, yes. And I did it for free as a service for maybe two years before some guy offered me $300 to give a speech. And I thought to myself, he's going to pay me to give a speech? That's very odd. Uh, and I accepted it and did the gig with a bunch of young accountants. And it went really well. And I thought for the first time, I'll be darned, maybe this is a, a vocation. And fast forward a decade, and it's, it's a vocation. So are you a teacher at heart? I know you're a global educator, LinkedIn learning. Are you a teacher at heart? Yeah, I mean, I think there's similar labels, teacher, educator. I always use one of them. I like educator, I think, a little more because it's a little more generic and big. Uh, but I like teaching. I miss teaching. I spent many, many, many years doing that. In fact, since I left, I think I still do it all the time. I do it, of course, through courses. But one-on-one, -on -one, electronically, I mean, every day I get 10 or 20 notes from somebody somewhere around planet Earth uh, that relates to something they're experiencing that they were thinking about because of a course they took on LinkedIn Learning. And then they ask me a specific question about an opportunity they're thinking about, a crazy boss they don't understand, or whatever it is. So I find myself coaching a lot uh, to this day, teaching a lot to this day. Okay, good. In your book, Show Your Ink, Chapter 5 is titled defining clear values that strip club in Mexico could you set the stage and talk about why it's important to identify your values sure so it's funny that you went to that one it's a good one it sounds like it's gonna be rated R but it's rated PG uh, the truth is 
Every day when people make decisions, we don't have our, eye, our minds optimized. We're busy, we're distracted, we're putting out fires, we're nervous, whatever it might be. Uh, we don't have low stress, great clarity, excessive amounts of time to think through things. And the truth is that when we make snap decisions out of necessity, we're driven by things such as stereotypes, which we mentioned. Another huge factor is our values. So the truth, and people don't like this, young people don't even understand it. Uh, but they will. Every one of us in their careers finds what I call gray area. People call it different things. The idea is that knowing right from wrong isn't as crystal clear and quick and easy as you wish it were. So you've got to make a decision when you're feeling a little cloudy or confused and you're not quite certain. How do we act under those conditions? One of the variables that we know has a big impact is your values clarity. Do you know what you stand for in life and at work? Uh, it turns out higher the clarity, the more quickly and effectively you tend to make decisions under those conditions. And the more you've never thought about it, for whatever reason, the more you are likely to make suspect decisions when you find yourself in those little gray areas. So the strip club was a real thing that happened in my life that was unexpected that a client hurled upon my team, uh, and I had to deal with it as best I could, and it reinforced for me watching myself go through it, watching my friend in the story go through it. Uh, it, it reinforced for me the need to have clarity uh, but it's, it's fixing the roof before it rains. The need to have clarity before you find yourself in these odd, difficult, unexpected decision contexts. Because when you bring some clarity about what matters to you into those, you're going to be more comfortably decisive. And if you don't, you just kind of roll with it. You roll with it, which is what I did in that story. Great story, by the way. You talk about emotional intelligence. You tell a story about your mom. Mm calling you and telling you about what she'd found, cancer. Um, and this was right before an MBA class. Can, do you, yeah. Are you okay with elaborating on that? Sure. Uh, for those who are interested, if anybody knows what I do, LinkedIn Learning is a big part of my life. And they actually uh, decided they're doing many experiments now with the formats of their courses and recently asked me to do a story as I would as a speaker. And we captured that one. So in my database there online for anyone is the story you're referring to now, which makes me very happy because I've never really had a, that platform uh, in terms of sharing stories. Yeah. Uh, the summary is real quick. I'm planning to go to class. Mom calls, admits she's not told me something she needs to tell me for months, and that was that she found that growth, uh, and it was big as a baseball on her throat. And I saw a picture, still have it, uh, baseball right there. Anyhow, that breaks you down the way you know it breaks you down. I had to go to class. I'm standing there. I end up losing control first time ever, uh, first time only, I think, of professionally looking at people, and then you just lose it and you start crying. And I didn't indulge them and talk about it. I just caught control after too many tears and uh, left and didn't say anything and, and I felt really bad I felt like a failure that's a big theme in the story I felt like that was wrong that was a lack of emotional intelligence and uh, she lasted a couple months strangely good couple months uh, and I have flexibility so I was with her a ton which is great and then years later long story short a couple years later I'm on stage somewhere else telling a story that people tend to enjoy about my dad you'll remember that story and a few people get teary eyed they always do and I saw that, and normally I'm used to that. But for some reason this day, when I saw it on stage, it was St. Louis, big corporate audience, um, I felt that emotional vibe jump in my direction, and it made me want to start crying, and I flashed back to the classroom. I'm not doing this again. I'm going to grow some emotional strength here, and I'm not going to cry publicly and make it, you know, a, a scene. So I left the people who I saw crying. I just walked across the stage, and I got control of myself, long story short, to the point that I realized something, and I don't know why. But I realized that what happened in that classroom after mom shared her reality with me was not a failure, and it wasn't negative. It was raw, it was difficult, but it is best described as a positive rapport-building thing, even if it was very difficult. Somehow that became clear. 
who knows how the brain works sometimes. And when it did, I felt like I had a new lease on life. And I went and found those criers and I talked to them and I allowed myself to get teary-eyed again. And the whole audience was loving it. And it wasn't because of the true strength of my message. It was because they were watching a person doing something terribly real and vulnerable and authentic. And that was a hell of a lesson. And my mother taught me that in a very unexpected way by helping me break down in front of a group uh, to teach me that lesson. And you said that um, that that you grew closer you're closer to those those people than any other class you'd ever taught. Oh yeah, I'm still here from people in there for sure, <laughs> right. because that's something you don't forget. I remember what I said a little while ago from another question. I think every day we all censor in somewhat understandable, but not necessarily healthy or productive ways. We feel repressed and da da da. So when we see or get to take part in something that looks raw, authentic, real, that we're often shunning as somehow not professional or too personal, well, that moves people. It moves them emotionally. And we know as scientists, when you move people emotionally, learning tends to stick more as well. Uh, so, yeah, I sure, certainly hear from some of those people. Yeah. I, I Now, correct me if I'm wrong or if you see this differently, but it, se- it seems like you almost went through a little battle with those guys, a battle, an emotional kind of war. Your mom was you know, getting ready to pass away and they saw you emotionally and they kind of surrounded you and cared about it? They were mad I wouldn't speak about it that night in class. Okay. I put on this shower show for them and then looked up and most of them are crying. <laughs> and uh, they wanted the obvious thing, an explanation, and I didn't give it. And I think they felt robbed because normally I'm, I'm less professional than most props would have been and I'm far more just conversationally personable and I wasn't that day. So the contrast between my normal self and what I gave them that night was very stark. Gotcha. In your, um, in your book, The Little Black Book of Leadership, uh, you wrote a leadership oath at the very beginning, <laughs> which, is, which is pretty cool. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so I was reading it, happened to be in my favorite reading spot, which is in the bathtub. And here I am, I'm, sa- I'm thinking to myself, I don't need to do this oath, but I went with it. So mm. there I'm in the bathtub, got my right hand raised, <laughs> taking the leadership <laughs> oath. And, uh, but the first thing in there, the first thing in that leadership oath, and I think there's 10 yeah. leadership uh, nuggets in there, but the first thing is improve myself and my organization, sincerely care for others. So the question is, is um, can you help others without, without being emotionally put together or, or can you help yourself? You, do you have to work on yourself before you can help others? I, I think it's a, a basic tenet of leadership is it always starts with you, not them. Uh, without mm, some introspection, reflection, self-analysis, improvement, and growth, without that in you, your odds of making them better aren't zero, but there's certainly a lot worse odds. The more you embrace these ideals you want to preach, that you've been reading about, that you've been trained on, etc., uh, and you start to embody them, well, that's when people are going to take you serious in the first place, when you start talking to them about growing and changing. Another thing you say in there is, pursue learning is fun, a mm. lifelong activity. And then there's, there's a quote that's always stuck with me by Ken Blanchard. Mm. He says, you're either green or growing, <laughs> or green and growing, or ripe and rotting. Mm. That, that, made, that reminded me of what you said there. So um, talk about that one a little bit. Well, it's good. I, I mean, I think 
we're scared because of the need to take care of ourselves in life into, at least a lot of us in America anyway, uh, into doing at least that which is minimally required to get a job. Hey, we finished high school or college and we got this job, first promotion. Now I've got a title and a salary and that's all good. Truth is, once we get past that first hump as adults now and we say, I'm taking care of myself and that's, that's really good, we lose some of the fire that got us over the hump in the first place. With each successive success, for most managers anyway, people that go the managerial route, uh, that's increasingly true. Each new success makes us a little bit more oddly risk averse because we don't want to screw up that which we've created. We don't want to mess up or lose that which we've uh, obtained. And that is unfortunate because the very thing that gets us there is not just hard work, but it's, it's sacrifice, creativity, it's a willingness to take principled risks. And we're less willing to do that the more we climb, which is why one of my big areas is pounding on people with, with writing and words um, who are mid-career and are feeling a little uh, a little okay in managing their mortgage, their wife, their kids, their job, and, and have lost the fire as a result to continue growing, which does make them, uh, does force them to go back and reconsider the principal role to, uh, of risk in their lives. Yeah. Well, I think, I think the book's awesome. Um, I think everybody that leaves like maybe business school that's going into business, or really any area of life, it talks about stuff like... Um, like self-care, sure. uh, it talks about uh, communicating, it talks about leadership laws, um, so I, I think it's super important. Well, that's very kind. Um, how do you personally continuously pursue learning? Tools, readings, people you follow? Sure, I mean, it's all, I follow a lot of people, it's always reading. Um, I, I always look at the bestseller lists, and I always... Which, uh, which bestseller lists? Uh, well, there's Wall Street Journal, Amazon, um, Business Week has some on occasion, uh, and then there's the the big names out there, and what are they reading? All the Maxwells and Tonys, and I like to follow them. I admire their success, um, and, and what they're reading. And, and frankly, I've morphed, as many people have over time, into less a strict book reader, which I still do, of course, uh, and more into blogs and podcasts. So I'll find anything from um, uh, Freakonomics was, I think, the one that got me started on loving podcasts, uh, and not just for professional use, but in general, your brain benefits from all kinds of cognitive stimulation, even if it's not business-related. So This American Life, one I happen to enjoy. Uh, WTF, the Mark Marin podcast, which is uh, about people in the arts and their stories. Fascinating ways to make your brain feel tickled and grow. So I'm constantly looking for the latest interesting blog or podcast, and it's easy to find them. You find the bestseller list, or you you Google uh, Best Blogs 2018 Leadership, and they'll, they'll pop up because someone somewhere amassed a great list for you. <laughs> so it's not hard to find. You talked about coaching people, being a coach to people. Mm. Do you have a coach yourself? Um, no, I don't think so. I have um, distant mentors who I study and admire, guys like John and Tony. Uh, there's uh, several thousand of me, and there's a handful of them. Uh and I say that with a lot of respect. They've been building their brand and um, building their skill as coaches for many, many years. Uh, I used to have a couple mentors, and I'm so embarrassed to say this, but I always say it. Uh, I was late to embracing the idea because one of the traps smart people or successful for your age people fall into is thinking they don't need a mentor, and they know what's going on, and they know how to succeed. And I wasn't uh, looking for one and open the way I would really go after millennials and Zs and tell them they should care about this concept because you don't know it all, and that's okay if not great, until I was in my 30s. And finally in my 30s, I met some people who knew things I didn't know that I wanted to know and learned how to shut up and listen and ask a few questions. So I was late to the game, which is ironic given what I do for a living. <laughs> 
you speak all over the world. Mm. You do it. I mean, that's that's your career. Would you would you agree? Isn't the majority of your career? <clears throat> it's my number one professional love. Okay. I'm maybe doing fifty gigs a year right now. Nothing crazy, um, which is my choice. And uh, I think it's my second revenue stream. The first is courses. Those courses okay. have excellent become unexpectedly popular. Well, that's because you're a good teacher, man. <laughs> Maybe, but they're pla- they're also just an amazing group of people at LinkedIn building a platform that is really spectacular. They care about teaching. They care a lot about people learning, no doubt about it. So let me ask you about the speaking specifically. What does it take to get to the level <clears throat> of speaking that you're at? Talk about the journey a little bit. What sure. Does it take? Uh, I can only give you my journey. Yep. What would work for others is a different topic, but for me, I was born comfortable talking a lot more than most people. So that I, I had that leg up. And then the joke, to answer your question, the joke goes like this. First thing you do is you get a world-class PhD, which is not easy to do. Uh, but that was easy for me, and it fit because I found the right fit, and then I got access to a classroom, and then I've got a captive audience. And on that captive audience in the first couple of years, I realized lecturing in big, fat, four-syllable words and other things professors do isn't useful to connect and make them care and thus learn. And so I started speaking more plainly, and speaking plainly became telling stories. Uh, and then the students, three years later, would call me, and then I built the website, wrote the first book, and every single year it gets a little bit bigger. But the truth is, uh, I was never bad. I was pretty good in needing polish. I mean, there's a difference between this conversation versus a training environment versus a keynote. Those require different things. How do you do become a professional speaker getting keynote type of work? You do a whole ton of free things first, which I did for the Rotary, Kiwanis, churches, civic groups, local business chapters, etc., etc., for free, happily, meeting people, making them laugh and learn. And if you're any good at this, and I've said this, and it probably sounds arrogant, and I don't even know if it's useful. If you're any good over time, someone's going to go, come here, that was great, I have a big event coming up, and I've only got $1,000, or whatever they say. W- would, you, would you do that? And you go, well, I think I can make that happen for you. And I don't market myself. I get uh, The phone rings, or, or the email comes in. Uh, I don't know how to tell someone to make that happen. And then I joke, oh, I just get a speaker's bureau to represent you. Well, they don't represent anyone until the speaker almost doesn't need them. That's the joke in the business, mm. is that they don't call you until you don't need them. Because if you've built yourself up and become self-sustaining the way I was lucky to, you don't technically need them. But if you want to, and it's a discounted rate because they get a chunk, you can say yes to them. And I do. And I have a bureau called Eagles Talent, amazing group of people in New Jersey uh, who book me regularly. So I'm, I'm very lucky. Start free. Get video. Find someone who will rip you to shreds. Uh, I did that. I wasn't afraid. Feedback? Absolutely. Absolutely. When you think you're somebody, just if you're young and actually trying to grow as a speaker, whether it's just because you want to be a better professional, to grow you know, your business's uh, popularity in the community, or maybe as a pro, which is the hardest thing to do, believe me, you want to get video, and you want to put people who are not just your friends in front of you who tell you nice things wrapped in innuendo. No. You want someone who's pretty good or better than you who will tell you the truth about all the silly, unproductive things you're doing as a speaker. And most of us have plenty of those ticks. So that's that's how you do it. Okay, that's good. we got a couple of buddies who are working on becoming speakers, and they're passionate about it. So this is good. For somebody who wants to give a TED Talk, mm. is that something... I mean, you've done them. So is that something that you want to continue to pursue? Yeah, they're interesting. There's that, That's a crazy fun brand that people didn't see coming 10 years ago, and it's, it's made a 
It's made a big impact to the point that they, they don't just have TED, which I've not done. They, they created a sister idea, TEDx, which was their idea for how to take this beautiful thing and get it into more and more audiences and communities. And so smaller versions of TED in a place that maybe isn't New York City, maybe it's Durham, North Carolina, beats me, will get a, a license from TED to do a TEDx event, which is the same thing, just smaller scale. How do you get those? Couldn't tell you. I was sitting around one day and my phone rang and they said, we'd love you to be the opening speaker of the first ever TEDx talk in Dayton, Ohio. I had already moved to Houston at that time uh, and they called anyway and said, we'll fly up, but they're not supposed to do that. But we did that. How do you get, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, social media and building your presence out there. They say all the time, Terry, that if you build a better mousetrap, it doesn't mean anything. You're not going to get anywhere uh, because you've got to learn about marketing and related notions. And I think there's a lot of truth to that and it has not applied to me at all. I don't know how to do anything other than a little bit of networking, social media. I don't do any classic marketing at all, and everything happens organically. You get in front of a group of people, starting when it was free for the Rotary to when it was a fat fee at Microsoft two weeks ago, and you infect them with good learning and emotions and positivity. And what happens when you infect people in that fashion is they go tell others, and that's how your phone rings. I'm going to Boeing in a few days. Why? Because I was at Boeing a year ago and infected some awesome people who told some other people in this massive organization and then they called me. I don't know how to make that happen any other way than organically. What's your, I know you believe in BHAGs, what's your BHAG mm. with regard to speaking? Big, hairy, audacious goal. Just oh, there's, I got a ton of them. I don't know which one to, which one, if it'll ever happen, frankly. So uh, one, laugh if you must, one is a, a residency in Vegas. Speaking the, in Vegas. The show during the day that people want to see. Yeah, would that be fun to put on an hour, hour and a half uh, of the things that, that I do for, for the businessmen who can still get up at 8 o'clock in the morning because they didn't stay out with the rest of the people at the convention party the night before and, and be the day show for the, for the group that really does want a dose of education to go with their entertainment in Vegas. I think that would be fun. Uh, I used to be on the radio. I think being on the radio again would be fun. The biggest answer to your question is TV. Several times since uh, I grew, uh, they've come calling, and it's never led to anything other than I like you, and I don't think you're famous enough yet for us to put you on television. Uh, but I think a season or two of something business-oriented in the reality space would be huge fun, number one, and then it would, it would definitely propel the speaking forward in a way that few other platforms could. So those are the things I'm still dreaming about, and always more books and what have you. So as far as the, the TV shows, yes. what, are you, what are you doing to make that BHAG happen? Yeah, well, jeez, oh, I'm going to be your worst guest ever. Uh, the answer is you sit there and wait for calls. So three times Hollywood has called, three different production houses, different producers of shows, including some people used to work for Oprah on her show. And they're like, I, I saw your website, I heard you, or the most common one, I saw your courses on LinkedIn. I think you've got a, a voice that maybe be useful for this idea we want to pitch. And that led to many meetings in Hollywood. I met with executives from every network you've ever heard of, uh, all the big ones, you know, the Discovery, History, Game Show, NBC, ABC, CBS, several. Uh, in fact, got pitched by Dr. Phil's corporate uh, handler, got pitched they liked me, and they pitched me to Phil as someone he should bring onto the show the way Oprah brought him. Uh, and from what we were told through back channels, he politely declined. He was not interested in sharing in that fashion. So I sit, I sit and wait, Terry. What I do is give talks that happen organically, speeches, and write books and blogs and tweets uh, and, and grow the cloud of stuff that is out there. And I know the cloud's out there because every day someone says something online about something I did, whether it was last week or three years ago. 
Um, so all I can do, I think, through social media and producing things uh, is grow that cloud and then hope that the right people walk into that beautiful fog and call me again. Do you believe in, in uh, favor? What do you mean by that? I mean, I mean, if you put enough good into the world... Some sort of karma, yeah. Can you... Can you expect favor? As and, a scientist. And blessing, and blessing for the spiritual sure. people. Well, for the spiritual people, I, as a scientist, I can't prove there's anything to it, and there's no research I'm aware of that supports it, but it's so beautiful and I think so right, the right way to think and behave. And it gets back to the service mentality we talked about a little while ago, that yes, I'd like to believe there's some sort of favor, blessing, karma thing going on. Absolutely. And for the spiritual people? Well, they don't need my explanation. They have a deity <laughs> and a scripture. But yes, I, I think there's definitely something to that for sure. Let me ask you about writing. Yeah. Because you're, you're a speaker, and you're really good at it, and you're a writer, and you're really good at it, and you're a teacher, and you're really good at it. You're one of the most engaging speakers I've ever heard. Thanks. Um, how tough is it to produce a, a best-selling book? I wouldn't know. Uh, I've never had a best-selling book. I've had books for the self-published, which I have been since the beginning, uh, which is just a control thing. That business has changed radically, okay. and they give five pennies up front instead of real money up front, and then they want to change everything and have the right to change everything. I wanted creative control. It's a creative person, so I've always been self-published, and there's just great platforms today for, for doing that. Most people who self-publish, even in my world, don't sell any books. I've been lucky. I've sold thousands of this, sold thousands of this. Very happy uh, to, to say that. I don't find any problem with writing. It's just easy. I, 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 speak, I write the way I speak. Most people, if you read this book in particular, you'll hear the way I, I you can almost hear me if you've ever seen me. You can almost hear me reading the thing. Um, so getting a bestseller is about a lot of things I don't understand that I know a few guys who've done it. Most people, I'm talking about the vast majority of people, never find themselves on a bestseller list. My bestseller status comes from those courses. Multiple times I've had the bestselling course on planet Earth through LinkedIn Learning. Um, and that makes me seriously happy. If there's a trick, I'll come back when I figure it out and, and explain it to your listeners, but uh, I don't know. I've, I've done what I'm actually proud of um, and, and figured out how to get people to care about the book, independent of whether or not they've heard me speak. You know, I'll, sell, I'll move some copies, and, and, and I think the answer for me, honestly, of, other than technical accuracy, you need a good editor, all that, uh, you have to speak from the heart. It has, you can't say to yourself, I think a book on relationships might be useful in this market today, so I'm going to write that. No, you got to go, what am I burning passionate about? What do I care about, understand, and want to think through even deeper? And what is part of me that I need to put onto the page? That's what you're right about, and that's when it becomes, frankly, pretty easy. Okay, you, you spoke a little bit about this, but any other recommendations for people who feel like they have a book inside them? Yeah, absolutely. So the best advice, I meet a lot of those people, the best advice that my dissertation chair back in the day at A&M ever gave me, an amazing man named Dr. Angelo Denisi, he said, let me tell you something, Todd, the best dissertation is a completed dissertation. And so what I can tell you about books, which is the same about speaking and nearly anything else, is that it, it starts off at whatever level it starts off at and gets better as you endure the process of learning and refining and editing and feedback and all those things. My first book's no longer on the market because it wasn't great. 
And it sold two copies, maybe, and I learned from that. And that's a tough thing. Do you want to learn or not? My first demo videos, horrible. So if you got that book, but they're great now. Why? Because I learned. I watched what was going on. I compared myself to the greats and tried to get better and better and better. And 10 years later, I can write a book that's credible and people enjoy and a speech that makes people laugh and cry. That didn't happen overnight. So anyone listening to this who says, I think I have a book in me, stop lying to yourself that there is a correct place in the future, correct time in the future when it's going to be somehow now is it's the appropriate time to write this. Uh, no, stop that. That's, that's just a, a mental challenge. Forget that and commit words to the page now. And on your third book, you'll thank me. Awesome. You talked about the Pareto principle. Sure. 80-20 rule. What is your 20%? What well, your, what, what do you do 20% contributes? 80% uh, of the results, by the way, if people aren't familiar. Well, if you're speaking in terms of, um, it's tough to answer that because I, I have this battle going on with educational courses and books and uh, speeches. So which one is the most effective in, in helping people? Which one do I love the most? Standing in front of people, telling stories, and watching emotions bubble up that are generally productive. I, I can't explain. I'll just go ahead and double down on speaking. That's my favorite. That's my 20%. It's the thing that drives me. It's the thing that, that fulfills me and makes me want to go through the drudgery that sometimes accompanies any business, like booking travel or, or building a client. Um, the thing that sustains me and I always come back to is I can't wait to get on stage next time because when you watch someone break down that wall, and start to think a little different and to feel a little different, if not overtly laugh or cry. Nothing in the world like that. It's, it's an honor, to be honest. I can't believe I get paid to do this. Yeah. That is a neat uh, career. Do you have a BHAG when it comes to writing? Big, hairy, audacious goal? Mm -hmm. um, I have, I think I do, and I don't think I've committed to it. Um, this is like therapy. I hope, uh, hope no one watches this. Um, I've never done the bestseller. I don't know what that formula looks like, and I've been pretty obvious. I've been pretty, pretty honest with you. I don't believe in formulas. Go from the heart, and everything else will be okay in life. It sounds a little simple, but it's working for me. So achieving that on this traditional platform, I think, would make me feel, and I, I can't even justify this. I think that would make me feel spectacular. Uh, so I'm always wanting these to get better every time so that maybe that happens. Yeah. Any, any uh, resources that you'd recommend for, for young writers or people that know they're going to write a book? Well, first of all, write and get it in front of someone uh, who's way better than you so you can get feedback. You've got to do that. Two, read books by people who have a voice that you find interesting and ask yourself, well, how do they structure that chapter? What, what about that paragraph and that sentence and that word choice? What are the people who kind of speak to you? What do they look like? Study their pages. Um, Stephen King's book on writing was also spectacular. There's many people out there who are profound who've written about it. Uh, he's the one I would recommend because I was a big fan, and his volume of quality work is crazy big compared to almost anyone. Uh, and the book is really good with practical tips. You won't agree with every one of them, but they're practical tips from a guy who knows. I think people should check that out. Yeah, I've, re I've read the book. I yeah. audibly laughed out loud multiple times reading it. It's, it's good, good stuff. Yeah, quite like yours. I, I audibly laughed out loud multiple times. Um, Peter Drucker, I, I know you're a management guru, and he's like the father of man management. Um, he says, feed your strengths and starve your weaknesses. Do you agree with that? Well, I'm always fascinated by how we deify people, and I'm wondering how I'll be looked at when I'm gone. Uh, fascinating guy. 
Uh, don't love that quote. I, I read a lot of his books. How can you not appreciate his contribution? Um, I don't really agree with that. I think that, that a more nuanced view is healthy because sometimes I think in that type of thinking that's represented in that quote, we're, we're almost uh, embarrassed of our imperfections. And I'm kind of making a business on saying our imperfections are what makes us great. Let's learn about them. Let's laugh about them. Let's use that comfort as a means to improve upon them. So I think you're supposed to leverage your strengths. Absolutely, that's huge. I also think you're supposed to identify one or two long-term skills that you know you're not great at, that you know will matter in the journey that you're forecasting for yourself, that you will seek out a little help with in some fashion. So I don't think you're supposed to put more than 30% of your time on those. But if, for example, if speaking publicly uh, is something you know you're going to be asked to do in your ascension as a leader uh, and you don't like it, you can leverage strengths all day long, but until you learn uh, minimally to be minimally competent in that other skill, who cares about those other strengths because this one's going to handicap you. So I like that, but I think you have to give a good quality, consistent minority of your time to some of those weaknesses as well. Fair enough. Yeah. You're a, you're a creative guy, from what I can tell. <laughs> there's, a, there's a neat quote that I heard by Frederick Heron. Mm. He says, we're most like God when we're creating. Mm. We're most like God when we're creating. That stood out to me, and that really stood out to me. Um, any love thoughts it. on that quote? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, my first love as a scholar, by the way, most people don't even know this, before I kind of assumed the, uh, the label of leadership and later some more finite ideas like authenticity, uh, I was a creativity guy. I went to Texas A&M because there were multiple professors there studying organizational creativity in different ways, and that's what I wanted to study, and that's what I did study, and that's the first area I published in, and I've been teaching creativity to graduate students and corporations uh, ever since. I love that, and I, one of the things I do when I'm teaching is pull out great quotes, and that's a great one. Uh, I think that a lot of people have an overblown sense of what we are as humans. I think we're well, three steps outside the cave at best sometimes. And the thing that really does make us look different than all the rest of the species is exactly that. We can uh, think and try, imagine, and then try to enact that imagination uh, unlike any other species. Being creative has got to be a beautiful, beautiful hallmark. Uh, and so, yeah, I love that quote, man. He also he goes on to talk about worldwide stats. He says 98% of people say creativity is important. 48% of people say they are creative. However, 2% of people say the company they work for is creative. Is there a discrepancy there? Well, there's some BS in there, too. Uh, most people are very scared to identify as creative. So most people will say they value it. And I'll just take the managers of the world who are my audience usually. Uh, they, they say it's valuable. It's wonderful. Of course we need that. It's the lifeblood of improvement. <laughs> And then people act creative in some fashion, and what they receive doesn't look like love anymore. It looks like uh, consternation and concern and anger uh, and worry because anything that deviates from the status quo is, uh, well, it's an unknown, isn't it? How much time, money, and pain are you going to cause me by, by doing that? I've asked a ton of groups, how many of you think you're really creative? And it's never as high as, what you say, 48%. It's usually a third to a quarter, sometimes less, because what I'm giving them in terms of a survey compared to that work you're quoting uh, is that we're live, and I'm looking at them right there, which is, an uh, you got to be real now, because I'm looking at you. Are you creative? And then people, not really, and they don't want to raise their hand. I think that's a shame, and the short answer as to why we do that is because our education system is very much a creator of fear within people unintentionally 
And that's a problem because creativity is a defining hallmark of who we are and we don't teach sufficiently to bring that out of people. Can you share a little bit about if you were sitting across the table from somebody, let's just use me for example. I want to be more creative. Okay. What do you suggest? Several things. Uh, you have to admit that what you know is what you think as opposed to what you know. So the scientist in me is very specific. People ask me, you went to college 10 years, so what did you learn? What's the greatest thing you learned? What's the big secret to life? And I'll say, I say this honestly, greatest thing I learned was how little I know. And if you're, there's some scientists that don't buy into that and they're full of themselves and they're a problem. But, but any scientist of any stripe who, who's good will admit that. And once you admit that as a person, the world of growth and, and opportunities emerges in a very, very new way because you're now saying, I get through every day, not by clinging to certain beliefs I've been told or I've concluded are, are right, um, but in fact, I'm going to go open-minded because that's interesting and I want to grow my insights, whether I continue to conclude the same things or change my views. I want depth of insight. I want to get closer to truth instead of just a belief. And that's a, a, an attitude of inquiry you take into life, and it's a choice, and it's exciting, and it's risky, but the people who are most successful usually understand that and behaviorally enact that. Excellent. Let me ask you about leadership. Mm. I think many people join the herd, few people jump out in front. And I think, and this is just me, you correct me if, if you think something different, but I think sometimes being a leader, it, it can get lonely. Oh, yeah. You can feel like you're on an island, kind of. Um, so how do you deal with that, and how, what would you suggest to other leaders? Uh, I, it's true. It's been well studied. You're absolutely right. Um, it doesn't affect me. I tend to be, people think I'm an extrovert. I tend to be, uh, I've been measured. I'm kind of on the border of I and E. So I enjoy being home alone, even for stretches of time, very comfortably, all by myself, just writing. Uh, and I feel equally comfortable on stage in front of 2,000 people. Strange. Uh, most people, uh, especially the ones who climb to high leadership roles, tend to lean E more than I. I'm not saying that's good. I'm saying it's true. And uh, they find that loneliness factor weird because their sociability was a big part of how they climbed the ladder in the first place. So what do you do? You've got to uh, proactively work with your family to have them understand the hours and the constraints. Proactively, you've got to use all the tech you can to stay connected with them uh, if you're not face-to-face -face with them. And, and, and for your team, you, the best answer to your question, now that there's the personal part, the team part is you've got to be out of your office more than you're in your office. Now, that, that idea has taken many forms over the years, but there's a reason it's taken come back and come. It's just there's nothing better than going and creating human creations. The further you go up the pyramid, the more people there are below you, the more opportunity you have to overcome perceived challenges across those levels by just going and starting conversations. So in the 80s, they called it management by walking around. It's taken different forms. The idea is you earn the office. Good for you, Mr. or Mrs. Executive. Now leave the darn office and go get to know people. Let them get to know you. Take a first-hand look of what that process is doing in that building over there instead of just reading about it on this report. The more you can go be among the people actually adding the value, that's a wonderful hedge against the loneliness that otherwise happens sometimes when you're in that office. You know what I mean? That's good, yeah. What should we look forward to from you. Mm. Working on some, some neat stuff you want to give us a... Sure. Always working on things. I'm redoing courses. I have new courses planned for LinkedIn Learning. Very excited to have uh, 
um, several more years, I don't know how many, of working with them. That's very excited. I'm just an unexpected part of my career that makes me happy. Uh, and then there's what I normally do, always hustling for the next speech, always evolving uh, stories. I've got a book halfway, a little over halfway written right now uh, called The Ten Delusions about uh, relationships in general, not professional book, but a life book about relationships. And I'm very excited about that. Hopefully be finished in 19. And after that, I think I'm going to do uh, another one of uh, these story books. I've got a title I've been working with and a theme, and the title is Live Hard. And the theme is around principled risk-taking, creativity, innovation, growth, those types of, of related notions for another group of, of, of stories. Um, and one more thing, I also have a, a service that should go live in four or five months called Ask Dr. D. It's a community of people who like these topics and who are looking for a little more than a quick email from me. Uh, if you've ever, you ever seen Quora, Q-U-A-R-A, the, the Q&A site, imagine a Q&A site like that, except it's really just a small monthly subscription community of people, uh, and I'm the guy answering questions. But everyone, just like in YouTube, also can jump in and ask questions and reply to things that I've written or others have written. So a closed community for people who really care about this, that service will go live as a coaching service on my website uh, in a few months. And how about your um, the uh, quotes that you're preparing? Thanks. I forgot about those, too. A uh, client asked for some of those quotes probably in uh, not in time for Christmas. Sometime, hopefully, first quarter on the website, you'll see those. those well, I got my top 20 picks of quotes that people just grin about and enjoy, and we've, we've made them look beautiful with graphics, and I'm going to sign all those and, and sell those as a, a really perfect office gift. Cool. Yeah. So our audience is, as you know, veterans, entrepreneurs, and leaders. What we miss? Do you have any any other uh, input for those groups of people? Any other advice? Well, especially when I think about veterans, I would just say, I think I've already mentioned this, but we didn't dwell on it much. The issue of vulnerability. Veterans have been through interesting opportunities and uh, very difficult things sometimes that few people other than they can really understand. People kind of know that. And so what I tell a vet when I see them other than thank you and never forget is you know what, your stories that sometimes you don't want to spend a ton of time on because, well, they can be challenging. Find a way to get over the challenging nature of it so that you can be a teacher because those stories, I think, allow them opportunities to become teachers, to build bonds with others that they can use proactively. But I don't think they always think about those experiences and stories in that light. So as a speaker, I want to say embrace that vulnerability because a great story builds a rapport like almost nothing else. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for taking time and, and effort and investing in what we're doing. Of course. And, and everything else that you do. I know you do some stuff with the prison uh, entrepreneurship programs and, and stuff like that. You do, you do some neat work, and you're sharing that with people and helping them get better, man. That's what it's all about. Thank you. My pleasure. Our mission for this podcast is to bring you stories about veterans, entrepreneurs, and leaders who are doing fascinating things with their lives. Our hope is to inspire you because we believe that inspired individuals will change lives, both theirs and others for the good. Bell Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're asking for your support. There are two ways to do that. One, by getting involved with our mission, and two, by contributing financially. Please visit bellinstitute.org. That's B-E-L institute.org to help us make an impact.